as we look to our Lord in prayer. And Father, in this service again now, we're asking that your Holy Spirit be moving in a very powerful way. Your spirit and your word are not separate from one another. We don't invest time in your word, but then seek out spirituality separate from it. Father, we realize that the most spiritual thing is the most scriptural thing. And that all truth is your truth. And Father, what we want to do is to be able to see the big picture of the way in which you relate to this world as a whole and then personalize it. Ask, and how does this relate to me? But just as much, we've got to ask, and how do I relate to you? So Father, with that connectedness that we want to create within our our hearts this morning, and these minutes that you give us to be together as we continue in our worship now, Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. We've come here, Father, again to see Jesus. Him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was in 1853 when Heinrich arrived in New York to want to set up shop for his musical venture. Heinrich. Heinrich, you see, would become known as Henry. And Henry would anglicize his last name, so it would be known as Steinway. And he had a son named Wilhelm, and he would anglicize his name and become William. And Henry and William set out to begin to develop something that would have high impact upon music worldwide. Steinway and Sons known for their pianos. Now, there was a time when they were offering some tutoring, and they had around a particular table a number of children, and they had the parents with them as well. And while this was teaching the children, really, they were seeking the ears of the parents. They walked over to the piano, and as they began to peer in and showed the children the various strings and so on, They were telling them, but really they were telling the parents about the tremendous importance for quality maintenance. Because there's seasonal drift, you see, that can create something that's out of tune. There's the movement of the piano from one setting to another. There's the issue of time, the issue of humidity, and then the value of tuning with a sense of regularity. But it's what they said next that stands on my mind that goes far beyond the musical into the global and yet the personal. You have to maintain the right amount of tension in the strings for a well-tuned instrument, William said. Good tension makes good music. I watch as a violinist strings her instrument. I watch a guitarist tighten his strings. And I ponder the tuners that come in and out of this building. 
periodically to maintain our instruments. Your life is meant to be a well-managed instrument for God to play on. But we've got to bear in mind if, if good tension creates good music, that there's a good tension and there's a bad tension, and what you and I are called to do is to maintain what God has brought to life, good tension. Which brings us to the very heart of this passage that we're going to begin to work together. Because in verse 2 of the third chapter, John had written, Beloved, we are God's children now. There's the now. And what we will be has not yet, and there's the not yet of life appeared. What God has done in your life and my life experience is that he has positioned us here now in 2017 in the creative tension of the now and the not yet. What God has done doing, and yet what God will do, and what God has promised. You might come here this morning and wrestle with the why, Lord, Have I or have we gone through what we have gone through? If you've asked that kind of question in the past or asking it that of your heart in the present, you're going to have to introduce the good tension into your soul because out of that good tension will come good music that will minister to other people. What I want to do with you is we maintain, develop, and sharpen good tension in our lives is to draw out four significant phrases that are found here that better equip you and better equip me to manage this biblical tension wisely and effectively for God's glory as it ministers to other people's needs. Let's draw them out. Four phrases that deal with this whole matter of the in the now, not yet tension of life. You consider the following phrases. First of all, in verse 28, our Lord is telling us, abide in him. In verse 28, and now little children, abide in him. Not merely around him. Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him and shame at his coming. What I want you to see here at the very onset is that if you overemphasize the now and underemphasize the not yet, you're going to have bad tension. On the other hand, if you underemphasize the now, and overemphasize the not yet, you're going to have bad tension. But when you biblically accept the fact that God has positioned you in God's sovereign plan for all of time, in the now, not yet of life, then your first means of being able to manage this tension well is found in that phrase, abide in him. And so he starts with the now. That's good. He's a contemporary thinker. 
And now, he says. But then he adds the next caveat, little children. Now, I know John's getting up in years, but he's got this tendency of people calling people even 60s and 70s, I suppose, little children. It's because now he is the last man standing among the apostles. The others have gone home to be with the Lord. He's written the Gospel of John. He's pending 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Revelation's still to come. But when he says little children, as we've noted, his mind goes back to that time in that upper room where he hears his Savior looking at his disciples. In the earlier stages of their biblical manhood, And there's Jesus looking at these brawny fishermen and other types. And in John chapter 13 and verse 33, feel the tension? Little children, yet a little while I am with you. And you'll seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now, there he is again, I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. There is a not-yetness to all this. Dealing with his return. So now we realize that if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are part of the pack of the little children. We're part of the family of God. And now he says to the family members who are wrestling with good tension versus bad tension in the now and not yet experience of life. First phrase. Abide in him. Now the word abide carries with it likewise the idea to dwell, to remain. However you want to put it, The real sphere of activity is found in him, not merely around him. Now, John, he seems to know so much, and so using an analogy of horticulture, in the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John, for all those who are well acquainted with tree maintenance and plant maintenance, And Jesus said to his disciples, Abide in me, and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm heading to the office the other week, and I see this large family out on their property. They've got rakes in their hands, wheelbarrow, and a couple of tarps. And the younger children and the older children alike are picking up branches from the heavy snows of the winter, from the winds of the rain, the early spring days. The branches have been severed, you see, from the trees. And as I look at that scene, I've got John chapter 15, verse 4 in my mind. Abide in me, I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, Neither can you unless you abide in me. So now we begin to ask ourselves, where am I vulnerable in the tension of living? Maybe you've got family tensions. Maybe you've got health tensions. 
Maybe you've got some form of financial tensions, but ultimately there ought to be that tension of the soul between the temporal and the eternal, where you ask yourself, am I prepared to meet my Lord? The tough questions in the tensions of life. What he wants us to do at this point is to evaluate whether we're abiding in him. So now when the storms of life come our way, pondering the example of the analogy, you see the branches down on the ground and the children are picking them up. Where am I vulnerable when it comes to abiding in Christ? Is there something in the medical realm where if things don't go right, I'm going to pull back, break down, pull apart, separate myself from him? Is there something in the financial realm where if things don't go right, I'm going to break down, pull apart, separate from him? Is there something in the relational realm where things don't go right, I'm going to break down, pull apart, separate from him? Here's this seasoned veteran. He's managed tension wisely and effectively. He's endured when others have pulled back. He even saw his buddy Peter pull back as Jesus was approaching his final day on that cross. John stood strong. And three days later, even though Peter shrunk, pulled back, John had stood firm, and so they would both run to that empty tomb, you see. And John now ponders the dynamics of abiding in Christ, even when the winds of life seem to go against us, and the storms of life seem to want to prevail against us. And now, little children, as you assess the vulnerabilities in your own life, where am I not prone to necessarily abide in him? Abide in him. Why? You feel the not yet coming your way? So that when he appears, we may have confidence. The word confidence in the original language carries with the idea to speak with boldness. In other words, when you are abiding in Christ, your life is the voice of boldness. In the now not yet tensions of everyday living. Same word used in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. So now, even when you're feeling vulnerable, but you've spotted your vulnerabilities as to when you may be less prone to abide in Him. When the winds and the storms of life come against you and the natural tendency is to break away, he says to you and me that we are to have confidence and not shrink from him in shame, you see, at his coming. The story of El Toma Pass. It was a fort that was being held by the soldiers from the north, but it was besieged by the people of the south, and the northerners were being challenged to surrender. 
the general at the scene there, General Kors, refused to do so, though his soldiers looked like that this was a hopeless situation and were prone to. But then a white signal flag from across the valley appeared, miles away, waving this message. Hold the fort. I am coming. And then historian tells us that General Sherman was marching to the relief of the beleaguered and faithful defenders. Feel like you can't hold forth much longer? Abide in him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence. In other words, yours is the life of a bold voice. Not shrink from him in shame as he appears. So when you appeared on the scene this morning, and you look at the vulnerabilities in your own life experience right now, Where is it that you're prone to pull away rather than to abide in? Are you resolute you're going to abide in him no matter what? So I want you to now note the now, not yet tension of living. You consider this first phrase. Abide in him. And now you're ready for the second phrase. Born of him. Check out verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been what? Born of him. Now, you cannot abide in him unless, first of all, you've been born of him. So what he's now doing for those who are feeling overwhelmed with this whole issue of living, God has created the now-not-yet tension of life and the now-not-yet tension of his singular plan, first coming, second coming, and how it all fits together. Beware of overemphasizing now and underemphasizing the not-yet or underemphasizing the now overemphasizing the not yet, thereby creating an unbiblical tension in the now not yet categories of everyday living. Now, how do you go about doing this? Well, you abide in him because you have to remind yourself, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've been born him. So now he, in verse 29, uses a pivotal word in his writings. If you know... He's not casting doubt. He's building his case. In other words, if you know that he is righteous, and we know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. In other words, what he is saying here is if you are born of the Lord, well, then out of this relationship, comes resemblance. You are born of him, 
you have a relationship with God, and therefore there is a resemblance to Jesus Christ. Now, the best preparation for the Lord's return is present preparation in your abiding. But as you're involved in abiding in Christ, then you embrace the fact that if you abide in Christ, it's because you are born of Christ. You're born Him. Now, this then requires us to pause and remember what it was that John himself had written with regard to this whole matter of being born again. In John, the last verse of chapter 2, I'll start two verses back, tells us that when Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man, he now then writes, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Connect the dots. Now, the religious leaders, as well as all the other people that day, would say, Nicodemus, this is some kind of man. He is an Old Testament scholar. He's a professor. We listen to his words. But as far as the Gospel of John is concerned at this point, you've got to see his humanity here. And Jesus has not entrusted himself to humanity because he knows humanity. And now you and I are told with regard to humanity, we've got a religious human on our hands here, what I might call religious humanist. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. I love what comes next, you see, because Jesus cuts to the chase. He's got a way of doing that with you and me, you see. He takes the issues of the hour and just cuts to the chase and gets us to rethink our own assumptions. Jesus answered him in John chapter 3, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, the wheels are turning in this religious unbeliever's mind, even though he is a teacher of the Scriptures, the Old Testament, to the Jewish population. And so Nicodemus, in the verse 4, responds, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? In other words, he is a religious secularist. He's a religious naturalist, you see. He is trying to take this idea, born again, fit it into his naturalistic worldview thinking, and it doesn't seem to fit. What Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then Nicodemus will say to him in verse 9, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? You do not understand these things? In other words, you could be a teacher of the Scripture and don't know the Savior. Now there's a thought to consider. Now, Jesus has told him you must be born again, which leads us to this line of thought. You've got to be able to distinguish between being born once and being born twice. 
if you are born only once physically, the scriptures teach us we die twice. Physically and then eternally. But, on the other hand, if you are born twice, once physically, but then again spiritually, you die only once physically, but not eternally. To simplify it all the more, born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. This is what the great evangelist Whitfield, George Whitfield, tried to say to the secular humanist Benjamin Franklin in 1752. When he wrote to Franklin, they were friends, and Franklin was overwhelmed with the capacity of Whitfield to be able to communicate the scriptures to large numbers of people. Whitfield wrote, Franklin and said, as I find that you are growing more and more famous in this world, I want to recommend to you the study of the new birth. It's the most important study, and if mastered, will abundantly repay you. I encourage you, my dear friend, remember that he before whose bar we must both soon appear has solemnly declared that without it we shall in no wise see his kingdom. Is Franklin to have to be considering now the British kingdom as it relates to the eternal kingdom and the Revolutionary War and all those other things that would come to bear upon this in the years to come. A naturalistic versus a supernaturalistic kingdom. Born once, die twice, born twice, die once. And now you begin to ponder the significance of all this and ask yourself, have I been born of him in order to abide in him? And if you can truly say, I've been born of him, repented of sin, put a faith and trust exclusively in Jesus Christ, the one whose claims were validated on the third day being raised from the dead, I've got a basis then to abide in him, because if the God of this universe is able to raise Jesus Christ, second member of the Trinity, from the dead, then he is the supernatural God, you see, who can sovereignly tend to the issues of the hour when the storms of life are coming my way, and I've got to check out my vulnerabilities and asking, where am I less prone to abide in him? Well, at the same time, I, I know that I've been born of him. You're fitting all this together in the way in which you're approaching the now and not yet issues of your life. Now, comes the heavy lifting. Because thirdly, in this now not yet tension of life, and you're considering the following phrases, abide in him in 28 and born of him in 29. The third one, be like him in verses 1 and 2. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, he says, that we should be called children of God. Hit the pause button and circle the word kind and relate it to the word love. He wants you to see emphatically he wants you to see this dramatically. He wants you to be able to see the categories he's working with. What kind of love 
is your abiding in the Lord in the storms of life. If you've been born of the Lord in the midst of the storms of life, how then can you be like the Lord in the midst of all this? He wants to hit the pause button, get you to start thinking about not only God's love, but what kind of love. You see the word kind? Very same word which was utilized in Matthew chapter 8. His disciples got in the boat. And behold, arose a great storm on the sea, and the boat was swamped by the waves. And Jesus, you see, was asleep. I like the fact that my Savior can sleep in the storms. He tells me he's sovereign, and the storm isn't. While everybody else is stressed out and feeling vulnerable, the sovereign one can rest because the storm's not sovereign over his life. He is sovereign over the storms of life. Have you embraced that truth? Well, they went to him, and they woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. I love the way your Savior, my Savior, responds to trauma with questions. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Notice the order. He didn't rise and rebuke the winds and the sea and then pose the question. He posed the question and then he rebuked the winds and the sea. There's a great calm. He raised the question and he has now visually given the answer. But then we are told in verse 27 of Matthew chapter 8, the men marveled and saying, what sort of man is this? Or in some versions, what kind of man is this? That even winds and sea obey him. In other words, we don't have a category for this. What kind of man is this? The word kind there is the same word used here in verse 1. What kind of love the Father has given to us? In other words, this world doesn't have a category for this kind of love. Don't try to put God in a box. He keeps breaking out. It doesn't fit. What kind of love the Father has given to us? And then you pause and say, here is one evidence of it all. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. And I smile because I think back to a little story that was told where uh, this man was at Six Flags, you see. It was a new season, and there's all the rides, and he's got the tickets, and he calls out, hey, kids, I've got tickets. And they gather around him, and he's got an incredibly large family, he and his wife. And so he begins to hand out the tickets, and then he realizes there's more hands being lifted up than there are tickets to be given there's more kids here than true children in this family. They're claiming to be part of the family. But they don't have a ticket. 
We're living in a religious culture where more hands are being raised and tickets are being dispensed because we've got people who are blending into the biblically-based family of faith, raising their hand and wanting to be part of. But God provides and blesses those who are truly part of the family. But you say, in this family, I'm going through such tough times. Life is tense. And then you remember what Steinway said. You have to maintain the right amount of tension in the strings. Good tension makes for good music. Gone through tense times. Yet you're a child of God. Now, he tells us something more. And as you're watching the news, and you're going on various websites to process the daily events, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And John, who continues to connect his epistle, you see, to his gospel, reminds us of what he himself had written in John chapter 1. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And the beautiful thing in First John is not only can you know him, you can know that you know him. And the challenge for the religious secularist, and I am intentionally combining those two, is not only do they not know him, they don't know that they don't know him. And the moment they've got you figured out, what you have to bear in mind is that they don't even know that they don't know you. You know that you know that you know God through Jesus. But the press might just simply divide the world, you see, into simplistic categories. I am seeing a merging of the religious and the secularist into a new camp, you see, of the religiously secular mindset. With a naturalistic worldview, and the press can't even pick up on this, they might think they know, but they don't know what they don't know. And you may try to explain these things in the workplace, and you know that you know him, but they don't know that they know you, let alone know him. And how do you go about explaining this? And then you think of six flags and all hands raised. And you ponder the dynamics, you see, of what this is all about. And you get yourself positioned now in verse 2. Here comes the tension. You can almost hear, out of good tension, comes good music. Beloved, we are God's children now, not down the road. And now, if you abide in him, it's because you're born of him. You are born of him to abide in him with the goal to be like him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. Underline the phrase now, and underline the phrase not yet, because this is the tension of life, overemphasizing the now, de-emphasizing the not yet, 
overemphasizing the not yet, de-emphasizing the now. What do we do with all this? Ponder this with me. Already we have been justified if you are born again. Already we have received the Spirit. Already we've become children of God. Already we live under the promise-saving reign of God. Not yet. We are not yet what we ought to be. We are not yet able to see everything under Christ's feet. Not yet do we have resurrected bodies. We are dealing with the tension of the now and the not yet. This works itself out in several different ways. Politically, Jesus is on a donkey. He's making his way into Jerusalem. And they're shouting Hosanna on the streets. King of the Jews is the buzz in the crowd. They expect now kingdom benefits to come their way, emancipation from Roman rule. But you see, the cross comes before the crown. There is both a first coming and a second coming. There is a now, but there is also a not yet. And they wanted to import the not yet into the now. Not only does this happen politically, this happens furthermore ecologically, environmentally. Earth Day was yesterday. I ponder the significance of that because there's a natural tendency in spiritualizing environmentalism, although the environment is a good thing, God created the world, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, to not take into account what God himself had said in the tension of the now and the not yet, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The now and the not yet. And the danger is to import too much of the not yet into the now or too much of the now into the not yet. A third. Seasonal drift. Movements. Time. Humidity. Regularity. You have to maintain the right amount of tension in the strings, Steinway said to those listening. Keep it tuned. Good tension makes for good music. Are you treating good tension as if it's bad tension? Beware of overemphasizing one and underemphasizing the other. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, family resemblance, because we shall see him as he is. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. You've got a family resemblance strategy unfolding in your preparations of the now and the not yet. 
Because if you abide in him, number one, it's because you were born of him, number two, which means you will be like him, number three, and now you are connecting past, present, and future, aren't you? In the big scheme of the now-not-yet tension of life. If God creates good tension, don't view it as bad tension. Because there's a fourth phrase here that simply needs to be embraced. Because fourthly, hope in him. Hope in him. And everyone who thus hopes in him, his evidence, purifies himself. Not might someday, where I say I'm going to wait until that final breath and then get it all right. Nope. The best preparation is present preparation. And everyone who thus hopes in him, purifies himself as he is pure. And did you notice the in him of verse 3? Draw a line back now to verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him. You begin with the in him. You end with the in him. And it all fits together naturally. Abide in him, born of him, be like him, hope in him. And now you begin to ponder the tensions of everyday living and the tension of the temporal as it relates to the eternal, as you think about the value of the well-tuned life, not merely the value of the well-tuned piano. Seasonal drift, Steinway said. Movements of that musical instrument. The course of time. Challenges of weather. The need for regular tune-ups. And then he adds these words, meant even more so for the adult years than the children's years. You have to maintain the right amount of tension in the strings. Good tension makes for good music. which holds true if you find yourself positioned in him. Let's stand together. Father, a lot of people run from stress. Christians feel overwhelmed sometimes by tension family tension, health tension. Some have endured in years prior in various settings church tension. There's personal tension. There are medical tension issues that people perhaps in these services today come here with. But remind us we can't call bad what you view as good. Nor can we call good what you view as bad. But we've got to be well-tuned in your word and by your spirit to manage the now and not yet of life. Keep us from overemphasizing. Keep us from underemphasizing the areas, Father, which we are not meant to. But to maintain that healthy tension in a way that brings glory to your name 
and impacts people at work and the family and the community because they watch how we do it. And our lives become a musical instrument of communicating grace to those around us. Minister at this point of need and help us now to, Father, to find what it means to be well-tuned in your eyes for your glory. In Jesus' name.